everybody. Welcome to a different type of episode of the Myth That Make Us podcast. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen that I've been doing a lot more Instagram lives recently during the quarantine. And if you want to be a part of these Q&A when they go down, uh, follow me, uh, pay attention to the stories. I try to do them around 3.30 on days where I don't have either a podcast or some type of coaching call going on. And yeah, um, if you would like to support the podcast, the most direct way that you can do that is to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and then also to share this with anybody that you think that it will bring value to. I love you guys. Thank you so much for the constant support. I fucking love showing up for you guys the way that I get to, and I wouldn't have that opportunity if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you. I love you. Namaste. I'm starting this a little bit early because I want to try to go to sleep as early as possible tonight. And these things get me hyped up and it takes a couple of hours for me to fall asleep afterwards. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you guys some time to hop on here. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was um, that one of the most important things that you can probably do for yourself during this time is to create a routine that you genuinely enjoy that gets you up at the same time every day that... Um, <clears throat> To prepare for it like you're going to work or like you were doing what you were doing before this started. So take a shower, meditate, work out, and begin, like when you leave your room, begin a day like you have something that you want to do. And this is a great time to cultivate a lot of these personal practices that each of us know that we have that we haven't given the time to nurture. And for me, one of those is like playing the piano or something like that. So I wanted to start this Q&A with that. And now I'm going to get into the questions. So <clears throat> I have 7,433 things that I want to do during the quarantine. How do, I, how do I narrow it down to one or two? So a really interesting thing that the brain does, if you make a list, is the first things that you write are the things at the top of your consciousness. That's just the way that we unfold. So write a list of the top five things that you're most interested in doing. Write them out. And then look at the first two and ask yourself, are these the things that I'm the most called to do? And for most people, it will be the things at the top of the list. And for some of us, it might be the last thing on the list because that's the thing that we have the most resistance to. Another thing that you can do is journal and set a timer for 20 minutes, do stream of consciousness and have the journal prompt be, what is the number one thing that I would most like to cultivate during quarantine? But don't stop until you do the 20 minutes. And if the thing that you actually want to do is something that you're resisting, you will very likely get to it by the end of the page and then you'll have supreme clarity. So try that. What did you do today to make your heart dance? Um, <clears throat> I actually took one of my ex-girlfriends and her roommate to Whole Foods and bought them groceries because both of them got laid off and it felt good to do. And so I did that today and that felt really nice and did my best not to work. I still worked for a couple of hours, but that's just how I am. But today was me attempting to do a rest day. What do you think of spiral dynamics? Um, I haven't really looked into it. So if you have resources for me that I can go check out, let me know. I've heard of the concept. I'm pretty sure it's by Ben Wilder or something like that, but I haven't really dove into it yet. 
I just did four days of expressive writing. Amazing results. How often should I do it? That's a great question. I haven't seen any research on how long you should take between expressive writing exercises, but I would, I would give it at least a week and then go to the next thing. But it's amazing that you did that. And I highly recommend anyone on this call, if there's anything from your past that intrudes on your consciousness, that produces a negative emotion and it happens consistently, do expressive writing over it. It will change your fucking life. Finding a lot of resistance to read my own journal, thoughts. So what's interesting is the type of journaling that I do, I purposefully never reread my journal. And the point of that is so you can be completely honest. Most people, when they journal, they have this expectation that it's going to be reread in the future and that it has to be profound. And then they say that they don't know what to write or they just end up not journaling because there's this resistance. But the type of journaling that I do, <clears throat> which was taught to me by Julia Cameron in The Artist's Way, called The Daily Pages, is you write stream of consciousness, you don't edit anything, you never reread it, spelling doesn't matter, and if you could see the fucking spelling errors in my journal, you would laugh. But the reason for that is so you turn off the judge. Most of us, when we write, we have the part of us that wants to express itself, and then we are also processing the part that's the judge. And the judge inhibits the expressive part from expressing. And so I would offer, don't reread your journal and trust that how you write, when you write it, does the healing and you don't have to reread it. Any advice on how to communicate raw findings of the muse, make it more digestible? Yeah, so everything that I read, I read with the expectation that I want to teach it one day. And so what I would offer is if you have friends that vibe with the shit that you read, try to explain it to them in person and watch their face. If you're really paying attention, a person's body will tell you whether or not what you're saying makes sense. Like watch their face. And if it doesn't make sense, that's feedback to you that you don't understand it clearly yet. Um, Albert Einstein has an amazing quote, and it's, <clears throat> if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it. And he was able to explain gravity and his very complex equations using a fucking blanket and a bowling ball. And so try to explain it to people in person until you can get to the point where they at least understand what you're saying. And then when you start to write it, the book that I would recommend that has most helped me explain complex ideas is called Made to Stick by like Chip and something Heath, their brothers. <clears throat> and they teach you how the human mind best processes information. And I'll give you the punchline. It's stories. When you're trying to teach something, <clears throat> start with a story. What I do is I basically, I start with a story, I give the science, and then I give specific applications that people can do to start to do the thing. And so... That is what I would recommend for you there. Any tips for reading the Red Book? Jokingly, my first tip is don't fucking read the Red Book because it will crack your psyche open and you will go crazy in the best way. But um, jokes aside, what I would offer is read the Red Book at night with a candle 
and play music that you like and read it in small chunks because it is so fucking heavy and dense. Um, I started reading the Red Book a couple of months ago and then my life fucking exploded around me and I stopped reading it. Uh, it's, it's one of the most profound books that I've ever fucking read, but I would recommend Take It Slow. How have your core values changed as you have grown in time and space? Man, they've changed a lot. Like 10 years ago, I was an atheist. And if you try to tell me anything about spirituality, I was ready to shut you the fuck down by quoting like Christopher Hitchens. <clears throat> but so basically, whatever your values are, they're stories. And you can test your stories by living life. And when you live life and you're open to the feedback that life gives you, you are invited to update your stories. And you best update them by testing them in the world. And so, like, I tested my beliefs about not believing in spirituality by eating some fucking mushrooms over and over and over again. And, you know, very quickly I changed my tune. Um, so they have grown through me testing them. And some of the things that have changed the most is obviously my belief in a spiritual God. Um, also a big thing that has changed is I fundamentally have changed the way that I listen to people. When I was younger, I listened to people anticipating how to logically show them that they were wrong. And so the way that I listened was not to hear them, but to look for logical inconsistencies. It was insufferable. I don't know how my friends stayed my friends. Now the way that I listen is I see that everyone is telling a story and I'm trying to see their story as clearly as I possibly can and then to ask questions that help them illuminate parts of their story for them and so I can understand their story more clearly. And it has made, like... <clears throat> People love talking to me and I love listening to people and it's fundamentally changed the way that I have conversations. So that's amazing. Um, and when it comes to how I relate to myself and how I relate to romantic partners and, ev and even to friends who want to get this deep with me is I start to look as, at people as kingdoms <clears throat> and that they're made up of a bunch of characters and I try to discern which character is active and how to speak to that character and also how to do that to myself. <clears throat> so those are some of the things that have most changed in me in the last 10 years. That's a good question. Do you know much about spirit quests? Um, so there's a place where I went and did ayahuasca or went and did Wachuma called spirit quest, but because you put a space between there and then you put S on the end, I feel like you're asking about something else. I don't specifically know what you're referring to when you say spirit quests, but if I had to guess, like any type of altered consciousness experience that you do is a quest of the spirit. Um, but without knowing more details, my answer is actually no, I don't know about spirit quests. So if you want to share that, that would be dope. Can you riff on Make Your Myth? Yeah, so Make Your Myth is the current course that I have on my website that I'm about to update and add to a new journaling course that anyone who has bought Make Your Myth will be able to get this new course for free. But basically, what Make Your Myth was, was the workshop that I did in Tulum um, last year 
where I helped people understand that there's two types of consciousness inside of them by teaching them about split brain experiments. And if you guys don't know about split brain experiments, that's one of the wildest things in psychology. But basically, people who had epileptic seizures, um, the type of surgery that we did to them to cure the seizures is that we cut the corpus callosum, which is the connective tissue that links the left and right hemispheres of the cortex. And what they found, what a really amazing surgeon found through experiments was that if you put a divider between the two eyes, the two hemispheres operated as if they were two separate conscious beings. And you can go on Google and find out about these amazing experiments. But basically what they found is that wherever the speech center was located, and in most people that's going to be in the left hemisphere, but it's not like that for everybody, that the part of you that talks is the part of you that makes up stories. And then the other hemisphere can't speak, but it communicates through the body. And these two things speak and act differently. And what I showed people in the workshop is that you can think of these two different consciousnesses in you as your ego and your soul. And they have different wills inside of you. And then I told people about the Prometheus myth, which is one of my favorite myths, that I see as a mythical representation of the idea of being able to look into the future and then make sacrifices now that will help you create the future that you want. And then I basically put people through a meditation that helped them imagine their potential self that they could be. And then I had that being walk up to them and basically explain to them, I can only exist in the world if you create me. And the only way that you create me is by transforming who you are into me. And the only way that you can do that is by sacrificing the parts of you now that aren't me. And all of us know that we have habits and patterns that our highest possible potential do not have. And the way that you manifest your potential is to start to burn away, which is the fire that Prometheus stole, those habits. And so it comes down to habit change. And then <clears throat> I taught people basically how you can change your habits. And then I put all of that into a course. Um, it's, it's the first course that I've made and it's not as good as it could be, but it's a place to start. And the course that I'm working on now is going to give a lot more context to that. And anyone who has bought that course, they're going to be able to get this other one for free. And so that's basically me riffing on Maker Myth. Would you, would you consider sharing a live trip report immediately following the come down? I don't know. Is that something that you guys would want to see? Um, I, I don't know what I would be like if I did that. I know that it would be interesting. Um, if enough of you want it, I'll consider it. Uh, I do plan on doing mushrooms pretty soon. Um, I haven't been able to procure them yet, but once I get them, I will be doing a pretty deep dose soon. And if you guys want it, I'll fucking consider it. That would be interesting just for me to see because <laughs> I get weird. Um, what is your view on ghosts and spirits? And have you ever seen any? So I personally have never had an experience where I genuinely felt like I was experiencing a ghost, but lots of people have told me, you know, their ghost stories. I believe that ghosts and spirits are 
anthropomorphizations of the psyche that are so strong that it is perceived as if it is in the external world. Now, when I explain this to people who have stories, they think what I'm saying is that it's not as real as they thought it was. But that's not how I see the psyche. I see things that arise in your experience are as real as a fucking piano to you. And so if you have an experience of a spirit, there is something in your psyche that is trying to communicate to your conscious mind, and it's a message. But I've never personally had an experience where I felt like I was experiencing something outside of my psyche that was a ghost or a spirit. I for sure have had experiences where I felt like my psyche was trying to communicate to me through changing my perception of the objective world in a way where it was trying to give me a message. Like just yesterday, I was thinking a thought that a part of me knows is my ego trying to convince me to indulge in a shadow behavior. And in the carpet that I was looking at, I could feel that my eyes relaxed and I created an image in the carpet of this like laughing lion king thing. And I instantly knew that it was my shadow laughing at me for considering the idea. And so that that's how I kind of see the world. Um, that's where that's at. <clears throat> what is the difference between morals and ethics? Uh, this is an interesting question. If I had to just make up some shit off the top of my mind, morals feel like shoulds, whereas ethics are choices that you make. So one feels like it's coming from above onto you, and that can feel oppressive. Ethics feel like that's something that I choose to live by. And so I would say that ethics are a better way to choose to be as opposed to adopting shoulds or morals. And morals also imply a right or wrong, whereas ethics feel like it implies I'm choosing to as opposed to it's being forced upon me. Does Jungian psychology address past lives? So I haven't heard Jung specifically talk about past lives, but taking my Jungian understanding and applying it to past lives, my intuition about past lives is that before you developed enough cognitive architecture to have your conscious experience, which starts at about age three, you still experienced a bunch of shit for three years. And my intuition is that when people experience what they feel like is a past life, it's a symbolic story that their psyche is giving themselves for an experience that happened before they were three. And I have not had a personal experience where it felt like I was experiencing a past lives. I for sure have had people tell me about my past lives and that feels like their story. But my personal understanding of what I think past lives are is us trying to process experiences that we had that happened before we had enough cognitive architecture to be able to tell stories. I hope that makes sense. What does it mean to heal? So I would assume that you're talking about psychological healing as opposed to physical healing because physical healing seems pretty straightforward. Psychological healing feels like if you have patterns that you know create more fear or that come from a place of fear or, or that you have patterns that create restriction or withdrawal, that if you learn how to act in a way where instead of withdrawing in a way that you normally did, you open up to it, 
I would consider that healing. Also, if you know that you have patterns that either wound you psychologically or hurt other people around you, and then you find a new behavior to act in that situation that doesn't wound, I would call that healing too. So essentially for me, healing comes down to you've either changed your attitude or your physical behavior around a situation where you could see that your pattern before caused pain or was in fear and created more fear or more pain. How does neurochemistry and the more esoteric psyche concepts interact? Um, the truth is, I don't know. So when you think about what neurochemistry is, essentially what we have done is we have created tools of measuring things happening in the physical body that we have found correlate to certain experiences in the subjective individual. And there's a huge gap between why does this physical process that we're measuring create experience at all? And I think that huge gap is where a lot of esoteric ideas fill in the void. And I don't know enough about the neurochemistry to really feel like I could talk on it, but it's the hard problem of consciousness that philosophers talk about. We can measure shit all day in the brain, but we still have no idea why. Physical processes in the brain create the subjective experience of consciousness. And I think that's where a lot of esoteric systems can fill in the void. Any thoughts on an ego death, including a soul-crushing loneliness feeling and solipsism? So solipsism is a really interesting philosophical idea where you believe that you are the thing in the universe creating the entire universe. And I think why solipsism is so sticky is because subjectively it is true, but it's where you conflate your subjective world with the entire world. And I for sure have had psychedelic experiences where it truly felt like the entire world was the creation of my mind. And I can only be in solipsism if I'm alone. If I look another human in the eye and I feel their consciousness, I laugh at the hilarity and the egoism that comes from believing in solipsism, that I am the only conscious being and that I have created everything. So that's solipsism. The question, any thoughts on an ego death inducing a soul-crushing loneliness feeling? So what's interesting is... I don't think the soul can be crushed. Only the ego can be crushed. And there's a really great quote by Robert Moore. And it's something like, if you can't surrender, you can't die. And if you can't die, you can't transform. And an ego death is transformation. And the soul always wants to grow. And in the process of the soul growing, the e parts of the ego will die, always. But the ego always comes back it transforms it grows and an ego death is an invitation to transform and without knowing the details i can't give advice but i find that when i have a quote-unquote ego death i have to tell a new story and so i fucking journal i will tell my i will write out the trip report of whatever happened that felt like the ego death with the intention of trying to understand what was the lesson here because the ego will only die if it's confronted with some 
idea or some fact or some story that doesn't fit the story that you had before. And so it's, it's an invitation and know that the ego will always come back. It can always grow. And the, the, the soul can't be crushed. Like if you take a moment to connect to the fact that the truth of what you are is that you are the witness of the life that you have deemed your life and that the witness has never been hurt. The witness has never been sad or afraid. The witness witnesses the ego being sad or being afraid or being hurt. And that there is this part of you that is invincible, that has literally never been hurt, cannot be crushed. It is the thing that witnesses. And I would say that that's the soul. And so anchoring to the fact that your soul cannot be hurt and that it's only the ego that hurts, but every time it hurts, it's an invitation to grow. That's what I would offer there. Do you fuck with Psytrance, Seven Lions, or Lane 8? So I do this thing where most of the music that I listen to comes from Spotify, and it's recommended. And if I like it, I will heart it, and it goes into my liked music, and then I just listen to it. And I don't look at the names of most of the songs that I listen to. But I would say I do fuck with Psytrance and Seven Lines and Lane 8. I just probably don't know them by name. How do we get you and Duncan Trussell together? Uh, I know it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet, but it will. So you guys don't have to do anything. Just, you know. Have you noticed changes in dream activity with solstice, equinox, or full and new moons? So the truth is, because I'm a modern human, I fucking am in my house more than I have evolved to be. And so I'm not very tuned in when, when there's a new moon. When I, I know when there's a full moon. I don't know when the solstice or the equinoxes are unless I look at a bunch of Instagram stories and a bunch of people are posting about it. So I don't honestly notice if there's dream changes during that time. What I have noticed is during this um, epidemic, I've been getting a lot of messages from people about dreams and my dreams have gotten more vivid and more intense and I feel like it's because the psyche is trying to process what the fuck is going on. But ancient cultures for sure have found that there were dream things happening around those times. So best non-concert party environment for solo MDMA. I treat solo MDMA trips just like I treat mushroom trips. And so basically what that is is I tend to do it at night. I pick a playlist that I've curated of songs that I love that tend not to have lyrics. I have a journal next to my bed and I take it and I lay down with the intention of, you know, facing whatever quote unquote trauma or whatever wants to come up. And whenever I have an idea, I will either write it down in the journal or I'll speak it into a voice memo. And then afterwards, I'll re-listen to it with the intention of trying to process it. So alone at night in darkness with music that you love that doesn't have lyrics with the intention to record anything that comes up. And also resist the urge to do anything because to move the body in that experience tends to be to resist whatever the energy is that's coming up in your body. And if you can be disciplined and lay down with a blindfold probably and headphones and just allow whatever to come up to come up, you tend to get some gifts. So that is what I would recommend. As a college student graduating next year in marketing, how do I find meaningful work like you? Okay, so here's what I would recommend. Um, take some time to figure out what it is that you would do in the world that even if nobody paid you, you would still do it. 
and you want to cultivate mastery in that thing. And the best resources that I have to cultivate that understanding is the book Mastery by Robert Greene and then Aubrey Marcus's Go For Your Win course, which is going to be coming out again in a couple of weeks. Once you know that, you go and you find the places online where people are already talking or working out that idea. So let's say it's fitness and that you're really interested in like keto and like helping people heal diseases or heal chronic diseases through diet. Go find the places online where those people already aggregate. So places like Reddit or Quora or Facebook groups or Instagram. And then go find the top groups or people who are doing that and then go follow those communities. And then every day, go to those communities and ingest the content that is being put out there. Read what people are responding to, to that content, and then offer whatever wisdom you can give or questions that you have and communicate with those communities daily. Do that consistently and you are going to learn what are the top ideas in this area? What are the people who want these ideas? How do they think? How do they talk? What are their questions? Where are they confused? Where are they stuck? And if you're constantly in those communities, you're, you are going to naturally become an expert at what is happening there. And then share your story of learning these things on whatever platform feels right to you. And you can take some time to identify, do you digest information best by writing, by speaking? So maybe that's a podcast. Maybe you do videos on YouTube, whatever it is. Find the way that you share what it is you're learning from these communities in your personal platform. And then do it over and over and over again. Like, I was broke and unemployed for like like 14 months before I got the job at Onnit. But I acted as if I had a job every day. And I woke up, I went to my desk, I went and I looked at these communities, I engaged in these communities, I read the books every day, and I knew that what I was working on, even if nobody ever paid me, I would still want to genuinely know this shit because it's what my soul wanted to do. And I knew I wouldn't be denied. Like I knew that eventually I would find my place, I would find my way, and here I am. So that is what I would recommend there. Are humans beasts of burden? That is for sure a story that you can tell yourself. So one of the things that I would offer is that humans are not nouns. They are verbs. And verbs transform. Verbs are never the same. And they're always something else. Like, And it comes down to what story are you going to tell yourself about this life? And if you tell yourself the story that humans are beasts of burden you will act in a way to make that true and you will probably produce more suffering in the world than love in the world. But you could also tell yourself the story that humans are apes that eventually got consciousness and they have thousands of years of programming that makes them selfish. And when they're afraid, they can be violent and mean. And if they're twisted enough, they can be evil but they also genuinely want love. They want to help. Like all of us feel good when we help someone that we care about and that we can be in a way that makes life better or we can be in a way that brings more suffering into the world. And it comes down to you get to choose the story. 
And so what story are you going to choose? What are two ideas in your head that you have a hard time reconciling? Probably the one that is hardest for me to reconcile is the difference between is everything perfect or can we make it better? And I truly believe that everything is quote unquote perfect, but we also in each moment have the ability to choose between what our old patterns are and what the new pattern would be that could bring more love or light into the world. And so whatever has already been chosen, our past is set, it's done. And on one level, it is perfect, but it can be better and we can make it better. But I still have a hard time really reconciling the spiritual idea that everything is perfect. And then this feeling in our soul that it can be better and that it's better based off of the choices that we make now and that we actually have choice. How has your idea of God changed post ayahuasca? Yeah, so when I did ayahuasca on the second night when it got really intense, I basically felt like I understood that the truth of whatever the highest thing is, is that it is everything, it is always, it has always been and will always be and it's this feeling of eternity that is ego crushing. And before ayahuasca, my idea of God was that God was the highest potential in the individual of what they could be, but that each God was inside each person. After doing ayahuasca, I feel like I now know that there is an objective God, but it, God is a word. And God is a monkey trying to point at the moon and saying that the moon, that their finger is the moon. And we can't ever get to the actual thing. And any conception that you have of what you think God is, is inside of a box. And whatever the thing is, is beyond language. It's beyond understanding. It's infinite. It's eternal. And I feel like I, I experienced it. And um, so now I believe that there's two gods. The god that you can articulate and understand, I feel like, is your highest ideal. It's the highest idea that you have inside of you, and everyone has a different god. But then there is a thing that I wouldn't even call god. I, I prefer to call it eternity. <clears throat> There's this idea in myth that the primordial, like the first thing, is always the void. And then from the void, the first forms come. And I see god as the first form. And so those that's our highest ideal inside each of us. But there's a thing beyond that, that is the void, which is eternity, which is infinity. And that's the highest thing, but that's incomprehensible to the conscious mind forever and always. And that the idea of God is the highest thing that we can personally comprehend, if that makes any sense. When you think of someone who is cool, what characteristics do they have? So this is a really interesting idea because <clears throat> the things that we think are cool are characteristics that our soul is attracted to. And you don't get to choose what it is that you're attracted to. It's something that just spontaneously happens. And I see it as it's your inner soul pointing you towards characteristics that it knows if you adopted you would be more adaptive in the world. 
And so the things that I find are cool are qualities that I want to embody. So I think someone's cool if they have the ability to flaunt money and power and they choose not to. That they're able to be super calm in high stress situations. That they're able to cry when they're truly moved by something and they don't feel like they have to hide it. That they're able to communicate clearly what it is that they're experiencing. That they're disciplined and that they have some creative practice that they do every day that they give the world. And like all of those things are things that I want to embody. And so those are the things that I think are cool. Whatever it is that you think is cool is a part of you being, if I embodied that, I think I would be more adaptive in the world. And then you can run the experiment of trying to embody it and then doing it and then being a cool ass motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? Podcast recommendations. I haven't been listening to almost any podcasts lately, so I honestly don't have any. Um, but anyone listening, if you have podcast recommendations, drop them in here and then you can go and check out the comments. Any advice for someone that doesn't have guidance, never had a father figure in my life? So my recurring dream that I had as a young boy, probably between the ages of like eight and 11, is I was in a car driving up a mountain and I was in the passenger seat and I would eventually look over to the driver's seat and it would be empty. And that was a time in my life that my parents were divorcing and I could, my psyche knew that my dad was leaving and that I wasn't going to have guidance. And I read the book Iron John last year, and it's all about men not having a father figure. And it hit me so hard that I cried so deeply that tears fell on the page. And I have glasses, so I don't know how the fuck that that even happened. But I think that the way that you can be your own father figure is there's two main ways to do this. The first one is start journaling. And I would recommend the artist's way that teaches the daily pages that will help you start to be honest with yourself. And if you can start to be honest with yourself and you have a place that you show up every day where you talk to yourself, you will find that there's actually a guide inside of you. But the other thing is look to men that you admire and start to study them. Learn how they are in the world. If they have biographies about them, read them. Learn what made them who they are. And then if you can, find a mentor where you can actually be in their presence. Because something that Iron John talks about is that men seem to absorb guidance from older men through their presence. And it's a type of mana that can't be articulated through pages. So for example, growing up, I read and studied like some of the greatest philosophers and psychologists that I admired. And I read everything I could possibly get my hands on about them. And I created models of who they were inside of my mind. Like I can talk to my idea of Jung at any time. I can talk to my idea of Nietzsche at any time. And those guided me for a while. But then I had the opportunity to meet people like Aubrey and Kyle Kingsbury and be in their presence. And they almost never teach me anything directly. Like they don't sit me down and like teach me how to do something, but I get to witness how they are in the world. And I absorb their guidance through witnessing them. So if you don't have direct mentors around you right now, you can find them from history. Like the greatest people that have ever lived, there are books about them and you can read about them and you can start to download them in your mind. And then eventually... There's the quote, when the student is ready, the master appears. And if you do enough work, 
you will find opportunities to connect with men in the world and they can teach you through their presence. So that's what I would offer. Favorite podcast that you've done? Probably the one with Elizabeth Shapiro. Um, That podcast felt like God was talking through her to me. And if you listen until the end of the podcast, you will know why I say that. So that's probably the one. Have you ever seen Bass Nectar live? If so, do you think he's on the verge of some sort of new spiritual sound dot dot dot? Um, I don't know what the rest of that is, but I have seen Bass Nectar live and he is my favorite um, DJ. And what's interesting is the sound of his music is the sound of how I feel when I do a very deep experience of a psychedelic, which is this feeling of like pulsating immensity that feels like it's consuming me. Um, But as for, do I think he's on the verge of some sort of spiritual awakening? I have no idea. I just don't know. But I would say that the art that comes through any of us that's authentic is the closest thing that we can get to God. That's his art. Can you do a course or series on the best ancient myths for modern day? So what's interesting is that whenever I explain a psychological idea in a blog post, I almost can't help but find a myth to explain why I think it's important. So that feels like it's something that's happening organically. And maybe at some point in the future, I'll have a collection of myths that I'll put together. But um, maybe one day is basically the answer to that. Been listening to Hero with a Thousand Faces halfway through it, so maybe there's unpacking to do, but shit. I can't see the rest of the question, so I don't know what you're about to say. But yeah, it's super dense, and I tried to read it a couple of years ago, and I wasn't able to absorb almost any of it, and then I did psychedelics, or then I did ayahuasca, and then I reread it, and then it's like everything fucking made sense. So uh, don't feel bad if you have to return to it. What is the symbology of the crown? So this is super interesting. The crown is a symbol for the sun. It's a golden disc that has rays on it. And the idea is that a true king was the bridge between God and man. And that any king that thought he actually was the king was not a good king because his ego would become inflated but a king who felt like he was representing what's called a superordinate idea, which is basically a god. Like, the true king is trying to be a bridge between the divine and all the people that he or she is ruling over, and that the crown is a symbol of that bridge. It's literally the sun. And the sun, you know, is the archetypical symbol for the highest ideal, the purest way of being. And, you know, it's a reminder that if you put that motherfucking crown on, you are not the important thing. You are the bridge. What is an angel? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, My best guess would be is that angels are a symbol for the part of you that feels like a guide that will come to you in moments of distress. Um, There's a really interesting psychological fact that when the ego is put into a situation where it feels like there's no hope that you're truly at the edge of your ability and you feel like there's nothing left that some part that something comes to you that doesn't feel like you that gives you guidance and initiation rituals have been developed in every culture that we've ever studied 
And it seems to be that initiation rituals are created to create this experience. And angels are just one of the metaphors that we've developed to explain that there is something in the psyche that when the ego feels like it's completely at its last gasp of air, that something comes and helps you. And I think it's one of the greatest things that we can experience because it shows us that there's more to us than we think. And the only way that, that we really know that is that we have to push ourselves to our fucking limits. What does an integrated ego look like? So I think one of the examples of what an integrated ego looks like is if you're able to see that there is a situation arising in your life that you are aware that you've acted in a way habitually in the past that either created pain for you or pain for the other person involved or was fear-based and then you choose to not act in that way with awareness that that's an example of an integrated ego. So to give you an idea, if you have always avoided going to parties because you're afraid, um, an integrated ego is an ego that's able to see the part of you that's afraid. And maybe you give it a name and maybe you can talk to it. And then through talking to it, you can coax it to give you the chance to go to the party and to actually experience what it's like to be there. And that because of your awareness, you were able to do it. And I think a better, a better example is, let's say the person that you love is starting to act in a way that makes you angry. And instead of acting out in the way that you used to in the past, like for me, my way of being angry at my partner is I withdraw and I just don't speak. And I did that a lot when I was younger. An integrated ego would be able to tell the person, I feel triggered right now. I'm going to go alone and think about what's happening. And then you start journaling and you're able to articulate the part of you that wants to withdraw love. And then you're able to speak to it and hear why it wants to do that. And then with your conscious mind, basically find a way to honor that part of you in a way that doesn't withdraw love. So maybe what that means is you go back to your partner and you explain you know, the only way that I could be aggressive towards my family members to reinforce my boundaries when they crossed them was that I had to withdraw my love from them. And I can feel that because you're really stressed out about work and I don't feel like you're seeing me or loving me right now, that that part of me wants to punish you by me withdrawing. I know that that's not in love. I don't want to do that. But to honor that part, I want to speak clearly to you that you being busy with work is triggering that part of me where I don't feel like I'm loved by you. Would you be willing to go on a walk with me for half an hour and we just talk about, you know, what whatever it is that we're most excited about in our lives? Like, that's an example of an integrated ego is that you've acted outside of a habitual pattern that used to cause pain or suffering in a new way that creates more love. Those are all the questions. So I'm going to start going through the questions that you drop in here and see what I can do. Can you explain what Jung means with the two fishes of Pisces representing Christ and the Antichrist? My brain sort of melts because it's like there are two Antichrists. Okay, so a lot of what Jung writes, I don't fucking understand. And so um, this idea of the Antichrist and the Christ being represented by the two fishes, the truth is, I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say that 
because of the idea of Christ, that there is a being of pure good, that that cuts the psyche in half. And that in order for the psyche to have balance, we had to create an opposite and an equal to create balance. And so when you tell the self the story that you're trying to be like Jesus, you cut off half of your psyche from your awareness because you don't want to accept the fact that the darkness is inside of you. And that alchemy is actually a more adaptive philosophical system than Christianity in the sense that it talks about bringing the two together. But I just pulled all of that out of my ass. I don't know if that's even fucking true. Um, let's see. Where can I find out more? I don't know what you're referring to, so I do not know what you are asking. P.S. Eric, if you haven't already, you should check out Christopher... Box book, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. Corey Allen had him on his podcast. So did James Gesso from Adventures Through the Mind. Heard. I have quite a long book list, but um, I'm always trying to learn more. How does one get started with plant medicine? So the first thing that I would offer is the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. That's probably the most sober examination of the current science around plant medicine. And then what I would offer is um, listen to podcasts from people that you resonate with who have done plant medicine until you feel like you kind of understand. And then go do it. Um, For people who have a lot of fear about altered states of consciousness, I recommend doing MDMA first. And it's hard to get actual MDMA. Most MDMA that's sold either has no MDMA in it or has a bunch of other shit in it with it. Uh, there are things online called Regent Tests, and you can Google this, that you can buy to test the MDMA that you buy to make sure it is MDMA, but that's the whole thing. But MDMA seems to be the most safe and smooth first experience for people into altered states of consciousness. Um, and then what I would recommend is slowly start to work with mushrooms. Start low, like one gram, and then slowly move your way up as you start to dance with it more. And, you know, when you're ready, when the call comes, and you'll know when the call comes because you'll start having dreams about it. If you want to do ayahuasca, I highly recommend Soltara or Spirit Quest. Those are the two places that I've been to that I trust. And then buckle the fuck up. How, why does it hurt when the ego is being unraveled? So you can think of your psyche as there's two primary forces in there and one is the ego and one is the soul and the soul seeks growth but the ego seeks security and the very nature of growth is that the ego will have to experience or do things that it hasn't before and that is scary and there's this idea that you have a potential within you that you know that there is a person that you could be if you started doing all the things that you know are meant for you and you stop doing all the things that you know inhibit you. And in order to do that, you have to make sacrifices of what's comfortable and what's safe and what's ordinary and what's known. And by definition, that's scary and it hurts the ego. But there's a quote from the movie Honey Boy. And it talks about um, the only way the seed can become the plant is the seed has to destroy itself. And that's a violent act, honey boy, is what he says in the movie. And so 
in order to become who you are. You have to kill. In order to become who you could be, you have to kill a part of who you are now. And that's always uncomfortable. Um, do you love your ego? I truly do. Um, I did an MDMA experience a couple of years ago where before that experience, I was really judgmental and mean to my ego. But once I did it, I realized I am a monkey trying his best to help the world. And like, I really connected to the fact that I'm doing my best. And my ego is like a child and he's, he's trying his best. And I'm, and to have love for the fact that the ego is this small, scared thing that wants to be safe, but that I also have a part of me that knows that he's way more capable than that the ego is way more capable than the ego believes that he is. And I see the ego as like a wolf. That if you're mean to it and you starve it, it will fucking bite you back. But if you learn how to train it and you feed it and you guide it, it becomes a potent force in the world for you to do the things that you're called to do. Um, so you've asked the base nectar question like five or six times. I for sure... I've seen base nectar live. Um, do I think it's healing? I do think it is healing, like EMDR, but with base. So what's interesting is there's a whole bunch of people where their only religious experiences will be at EDM concerts on MDMA with other drugs, listening to their favorite song and dancing. And Frederick Nietzsche wrote a paper, and I forget exactly what it's called, but he analyzed Greek culture and basically broke it down into there were the people that worshipped Apollo and there were the people that worshipped the god of wine, Dionysus. And he explained that like all the people who go and do their job during the day and sleep at night, they worship Apollo and like that's order and like structure. But then there's always been the subset of people who their life comes alive at night. And they're the ones that go and get intoxicated and, and dance and just fucking feel the pulsating of music and the earth. And that that's been going on for thousands of years. And I think that those type of people are the people that end up at EDM concerts on a bunch of drugs, dancing and having huge, amazing, cathartic, religious experiences while they hear wob, 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 wob. And I do think it can be healing, 100%. Um, let's see. Uh, how do you have meaningful conversations with close-minded friends? For example, talking about ancient cultures with someone who thinks the earth is 6,000 years old. So the way to have a conversation with a close-minded friend is not to try to force them to see the world how you think they should see it. Genuinely, try to understand why they see the story that way and what that looks like is just ask questions. Like if I would love to meet someone, I would love to meet someone in person who believes that the earth is 6,000 years old because I would sit down and I would genuinely ask questions about why they believe that. What have they learned that brought them to believe that? How do they feel if they do believe that? Um, 
what evidence or what experiences have they had that contradicted and how did that make them feel? What would happen if they didn't believe that? Like, how do they think that they would act or what do they think that they would do? Because of the way that I ask questions, I can't remember the last time that I met somebody where the conversation closed down. Because like, one way to think about it is if you have like a 12 year old who walks up to you and tells you that you're a girl and, you, and you're a man, like you don't get upset. It's funny. It's curious. And like, if they're your son or your daughter and like you're, and that you love them genuinely, like, I want to know why you think that. Like, I genuinely want to hear what thought process brought you to the point to make you believe that. It's only when we feel threatened by their idea that we get defensive. And if they feel that we're defensive, they get defensive and people close down. It's really interesting. We identify to our stories almost like they're limbs on our body. And if you start to tell me that my story isn't true, our psyche will respond as if like you're trying to attack one of my limbs and I'm going to fucking protect it. But instead of attacking their limb, you're massaging their arm with questions like, what muscle is this right here? You know, can you move your hand and like touch your thumb to your finger and just ask questions to help them explore it? And if it's truly a dysfunctional story, if you ask good questions and you don't try to change their mind, they will think about that shit afterwards and be like, hmm, you know? So that, that's what I would offer there. Um, come to my family's Thanksgiving and talk to my dad. Heard one day. Um, what's your experience with Wim Hof method breathing, Gossi? Diving deep during this coronavirus quarantine and I mean, experimenting altered states of consciousness with it. Yeah, so... Breath work is one of the most consistent ways that we can change our consciousness without psychedelics. And Wim Hof breathing is one of the ways that we do that. And Wim Hof has been experimentally tested in laboratories where he was injected with, I forget, I think he was injected with a type of Ebola or some type of virus. And he used his breathing technique to stop the virus from creating symptoms in his body. And his big thing is through the Wim Hof breathing technique, you can consciously alter your immune system. And he has shown it in studies. Um, and then Stanislav Grof, the psychologist, has created what's called holotropic breath work, where he has found that if you do this breathing technique for two hours, you will have a psychedelic experience as intense as doing a full dose of LSD. And if you look at ancient traditions in the East, breathing has been one of the primary ways of altering and molding consciousness since the beginning of recorded history. I personally don't do much breath work, and it's honestly because it doesn't call to me and that I'm resistant to it because I feel how intense it is. Um, so yeah, I don't do it, but I recommend it to anyone who is called to do it. Uh, we, the two minute countdown is on, which means that we've done an hour. I appreciate you guys showing up. I really enjoy doing these. Um, you guys ask amazing fucking questions and I'm honored that you guys show up and that you listen. I hope that you guys have a great day and um, keep on keeping on. This is gonna probably be going on for a while. We gotta find ways to take care of ourselves and cultivate meaning. Love y'all.